Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got a great peace builder, world healer here today for Spirit in Action. Matthew Legg is the author of Are We Done Fighting? Building Understanding in a World of Hate and Division, which far exceeds the content of most Imagine All the Nations Living in Peace type books. This book is profound, it's for the layperson, and it's practical. And at the same time, without being preachy or slipping into scholarly tones, it considers the real-world, experimental aspects of getting to peace. Matthew has been the Peace Program Coordinator of the Canadian Friends Service Committee since 2012, and you should plan on checking the northernspiritradio.org website for some of the bonus excerpts we'll have to excise from this interview to fit in the 55-minute broadcast. Matthew Legg joins us via Zoom from Toronto, Ontario, in Canada. Matthew, thank you so very, very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. We're going to be mainly talking about the fruits of your book. And again, folks, it's called Are We Done Fighting? Building Understanding in a World of Hate and Division. I'm partly laying the groundwork for that. Has the year of COVID been a time for an increase or decrease in peace and or violence? You know, it's an interesting question. And I saw a piece by Peter Coleman, who's at Columbia University studying peace issues. And he was highlighting the impact that kind of sudden shocks have to complex systems. So very often you will find that a conflict, if it's happened for long enough, becomes entrenched. So a shock like a a pandemic may actually shift those entrenched conflict dynamics. So it could actually be that it leads to a new type of peace that happens. And so I believe it was in um, Timor-Est where a natural disaster caused basically parties to renegotiate their conflict because they suddenly had new priorities that they had to worry about. Again, the book, Are We Done Fighting? I want to talk about the background that got you to this book. Now, you've been working for something like, what, eight, nine years now as the Peace Program Coordinator for the Canadian Friends Service Committee. Tell people first what CFSC is. Canadian Friends Service Committee is the service committee, the committee that does service or peace and social justice work on behalf of Quakers in Canada. Let's talk then about the book. Are we done fighting in order to talk about peace You don't start with a definition of peace. You actually start with looking at what peace is not. So lay out that background, because I think people think about these things in a way that's fraught with error. My experience in doing this in study group in Eau Claire Friends meeting where I am is it really required a 90 degree shift in our way of thinking to come at it in a more fruitful direction. So why do you start with talking about what peace is not? My hope with that was that I would allow people to come to the book with whatever ideas they already had about peace and to hold on to those as long as they were able to. 
you've probably heard this kind of apocryphal story of uh is it george fox talking to william penn and saying you know wear your sword as long as you're able to yes and for our listeners who are not quaker and don't understand that context george fox is the older of those william penn a young convert when he's still in his early 20s he becomes a quaker and ceremonially he's supposed to carry a sword but he's supposed to be a peaceful person so are you going to be carrying a sign of war with you and be a good quaker So the apocryphal story is that he asks George Fox, should I wear it? And George Fox says, well, wear it as long as thou canst. But we don't know that that's true. But that's a modern Quaker way of thinking about it in any case. Yeah. So my my thought here was kind of similar that I know that people will be coming with different ideas about peace. And some of those may involve that, you know, it's a good idea to wage war in the name of peace or whatever type of idea it is. And so rather than come out with a definition that disagrees with them in the first chapter, I wanted to allow them to hold that idea for as long as they are able and feel comfortable with it and to just present a bunch of information and then at the end kind of revisit that question and say this is what we at Canadian Friends Service Committee came up with with our definition of peace. But as you can see from this book, it's really complicated and there's lots of room for reasonable disagreement on these things. Let's get into some of that complexity. One of the things that is a big issue for a lot of people, even if we think of ourselves as peace advocates, we end up thinking of something like World War II or maybe fighting against slavery in the United States or so on. And we say, well, there is a time and a place for violence, for war as a method. There's the bumper sticker phrase, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. And the first one is K-N-O-W, no the second part of the phrase is with N-O. So that's part of your thinking here too, or not? What are you talking about in Are We Done Fighting? Yeah, so I think there's this really important point that peace can often be characterized in some people's mind as kind of sweeping problems under the rug or not addressing them so as to maintain the peace. And uh, that's not what we're advocating at Canadian Friends Service Committee. So there's this important distinction made by Johann Galtig of negative peace and positive peace. So he came up with these terms. He's the principal academic founder of the field called Peace Studies. And he came up with these terms essentially to highlight the difference between peace grounded in justice, which would be a positive peace, and negative peace, which is like what you might get in a certain authoritarian situation where a government is able to maintain tranquility or stability by just executing people or having other extreme measures to quash any type of dissent. So it looks relatively peaceful, but that's not actually peace. Early on, you do some things to shake up our ideas. So one of the things you mentioned up front is about interviewing for a position, a job, and you go in and one of the determinants that no one would have guessed was going to be a factor was whether the person interviewing you is holding a warm or cold beverage. Talk about that study. This was a study that found that when someone is Uh, So it used actors, first of all, so that the actors were presenting themselves the exact same way in this job interview. And the participants in the experiment were doing the interview, conducting the interview. And so some of the participants were given a cold drink to hold shortly before they shook hands with the applicant, 
who was actually an actor, but they didn't know that. Some of them were given a warm drink to hold um, shortly before shaking hands. The theory from this and what the study showed was that as a result of feeling that warmth in your hand, when you have that handshake, you transfer that to the person and you think, I feel a bit more warmly towards this person. And then you evaluate them more positively in the interview or vice versa. If you just held a cold drink in your hand, you feel a little bit more coolly towards the person and you evaluate them as such. So it's just one example of a whole body of research about what they call embodied cognition, that your ideas are not just purely abstract. They always say something about the current state of your body and, and the world around you. It's just one factor to keep in mind of many, many factors that influence us. To what degree did that actually affect people's judgment? Is this a 1% difference or is this a 10 or is it 50% of the cases? Do you have any idea? They're not massive effects. So we're not talking about it makes all the difference in the world. It's going to make a statistically significant difference according to the study. And I guess we should mention that as Matthew Legg is presenting the information, the discussion, the ideas that are in Are We Done Fighting, Building Understanding in a World of Hate and Division, you are, Matthew, providing studies, you're providing documentation about it. It's not just ideas, because a lot of us have some ideas that we think would be wonderful, but reality is often much more kinky than our wildest imagination. Yeah, so I definitely wanted to make the um, book as thorough as possible and to really challenge my own expectations that I started out with. And what I found again and again is that a lot of things that I took as common sense were at least in part wrong and sometimes completely wrong. So I learned a lot in the course of doing this research. And yes, the book has the best evidence I could find from a number of different academic disciplines from neuroscience, social psychology, behavioral economics, network science, political science. And I'm able to do that because I'm not an academic. So I can kind of draw from different fields with different paradigms and ideas and just try to see what are the practical, tangible implications of this and how can it apply in my day-to-day -day life as an average individual. So the book's very much written for a non-expert, for somebody who is looking for something to take up and apply in different conflict situations and yeah, it's called Are We Done Fighting? And I think, no, we're not. As Johann Galtig says in his quote about the book, no, we're not done fighting, but we can learn to fight in a better way. So I think that's really what it's about is having more productive disagreements and conflicts that are more rewarding for everyone. And hopefully, in some cases, even, you know, avoiding or preventing um, violence or, or other serious incidents. You said, Matthew, you're not an academic. That doesn't mean you don't have studies background that are helpful to this. How did studying anthropology prepare you to become a peace advocate? I think the biggest thing that I learned from anthropology was the relative nature of culture, that culture is extremely powerful and does some things very well. And then it also provides limitations on all of our thinking. So I've had the wonderful opportunity to live and work in a number of different countries and cultural contexts. I'm always amazed by how many things I take for granted and how much diversity there is that's below the surface that I just wouldn't have thought of, you know, looking at a particular problem in the way that another culture does. And so I think it's really wonderful when we're able to bring that kind of diversity, diverse perspectives, diverse maybe ideologies or beliefs to bear on whatever problem. It may not be comfortable for us because we're challenging something that we necessarily believe implicitly or that's even very deep, like our worldview. But I think very often 
if we do it well and respectfully enough, then we can gain a tremendous amount from that diversity. So I've always personally benefited a lot from living in different cultures and even from the fact that here in Toronto, there are people from all over the world that I get to interact with. By the way, Matthew, my impression, having spent a fair amount of time in Toronto because of work obligations for myself in the early 90s, my impression was that Toronto was much better integrated than Milwaukee, which is where I lived in Wisconsin, that I would see people walking down the streets and there would be someone who was Asian and someone who's black and someone who's white and someone who's Hispanic. That kind of mixing seemed to be much more common. Is it your impression that Canadians maybe are a step advanced from what I'm used to in the U.S. in terms of intercultural connection? I think when you talk about issues of race in particular, the U.S. seems to be a bit of a different context from everywhere else in the world. I'm not an expert on that to say, but I think every country has a little bit of a different culture in that in that sense. Toronto, I believe it was maybe around 2012 or so. Since that time, more than 50% of Toronto is quote-unquote visible minority or people of color. So it's a very culturally and racially diverse city. I think it's correct to say that there are kind of ethnic neighborhoods, certainly, like Chinatown or Little Korea or Little Italy, Greek town. But uh, I, I really like those neighborhoods. I think they're all really interesting too. So I don't even necessarily see that as a bad thing at all. And then with in terms of integration, it's certainly there. But there's also obviously lots of persistent problems. As one example, uh, Latino students do far worse in high schools than uh, white Canadian students in Toronto. So that's just one example of the systems are not necessarily set up to provide the outcomes for everyone that they should be. One of the things that we already mentioned with the warm drink versus a cold drink during an interview is that there are examples that show us that our decisions are not rational or not based on the things that we think that they're based on. A lot of times we think it'll just be a rational, clear indication, and it's not. Could you give other examples that were telling for you that kind of help shake up this point of view so, so we can actually find how we do make peace? Yeah, great. So one of the things that I was most interested by was uh, studies around people cheating on tests. And I was particularly interested by them because they were done in a number of different countries and the results were almost identical. So that was quite fascinating. Since we've been talking about the Canada-US difference, they asked Canadians to predict if they would you know, cheat more on tests or less on tests or the same on tests as folks from the US. And of course, the Canadians said they would cheat far less and the results were that it was almost identical. So this Canadian smugness doesn't hold up. So what was happening? Well, they did all kinds of different conditions. So for example, you're in a test hall, okay? And people say, okay, we're going to give you this test. Then we're going to project the answers onto the screen at the end of the test. And you mark it yourself. You decide how many questions you got right. And then you shred the test in a shredder. And then you pay yourself cash out of a bowl of cash that's just sitting here at the door. $4 for each question that you say you got right. Okay, so that's one of the conditions of the test. So that condition makes it extremely easy to cheat on the test. And it also makes it extremely inviting to do so. I mean, you get $4 for every question that you say you got right. Now, what the people participating in this test don't realize is that the shredder doesn't actually work. <laughs> so they're actually busted. Someone's <laughs> cheating on the instructions. <laughs> <laughs> we know how much they're actually cheating on the test. And what they find is that almost nobody in various countries in China, Turkey, Italy, 
almost nobody cheats as much as they can get away with on the test. But almost everybody cheated a little bit on the test. So what's going on there? And I think what it is, is actually says quite a lot about human reasoning. And it's that we're very good at telling stories. We're, we're excellent storytellers. And so if I want to cheat on a test, I find a way to tell a story that says that doing so is, is moral, that it's fair. It may be this question was poorly worded. And if it had been a better question, then I would have understood the answer. So I really knew that. So I deserve to get that answer right. Maybe it's, I didn't get enough time to study because I had a crisis in my life last night. So I really deserve to fudge a few answers here and say that I got an extra three, right? Because I would have got them right if I had more time to study. Whatever the rationale that I come up with, maybe it's a good story. Maybe it's a bad story. doesn't matter. The point is, it feels good enough for me to know that I am a moral person. I'm not a cheater and to be able to cheat on that test. So the story allows me to do two apparently contradictory things. And this is what all of us are good at, is kind of fitting a bunch of different contradictory things together into one apparently coherent and consistent identity. And so denial is a very huge part of all kinds of the worst conflicts and the worst behaviors. And very regularly, it's not because we believe that we're being evil or because we're kind of sadistic killers or something like that, that we behave badly, engage in violence. It's very often because we believe we're being moral. And this is what researchers call the dark side of moral conviction. The more strongly I feel that I'm being moral, the more convinced I am that I'm protecting my sacred values and it's really important to do what I'm doing, the more likely I am to justify and rationalize harming someone else, just the way that those people justified cheating on that test. So this is something that I think we all need to be very cautious of because whatever our beliefs are, most of us are more confident about them than we deserve to be, <laughs> than we actually can be justified in being. It's not that we shouldn't have beliefs. I'm not saying that. It's just when you find yourself being hyper confident about a belief, then it's important to wonder, you know, how am I so sure about this? Do I really understand the details of how this thing works? So this was studied, for example, with all kinds of different ones, but for example, about the U.S. applying sanctions on Iran. So they asked people, you know, do you think the U.S. should be sanctioning Iran? And people tended to have strong opinions, either yes or no. But if you ask the people, you know, why do you believe that? Then you're just saying, well, tell me this story. And it's the same like cheating on the test. I can tell you some story. I can come up with a reason for why. So if you ask people why, and then you ask them how strongly they feel again, they feel just as strongly as before. But if you change the question a little bit and you say, well, how does that work? You know, what are the details? Tell me how sanctions work. Then I say, well, yeah, I think you, um, well, I guess you, uh, and then I, I realize as I'm trying to explain it out loud that I don't really know the details of how sanctions work. I mean, they're really complicated. I don't know exactly how they're going to impact the people of Iran in various ways. I don't know exactly what the implications of that will be. And so whether I'm pro-sanctions or anti-sanctions, what happens then if you ask me that how question where I have to explain the cause-effect mechanism of my belief, then I hear myself faltering and then I actually tone down my belief. So that's what the study found, that people were much less likely to then support a charity that advocated for the belief they started off so strongly about. So this is an example of where we have these kind of intense stories and that's fine, but we need to try to rein ourselves in by thinking about the details, thinking about what we don't know, having more curiosity. My reaction to that idea, that statement is, oh my goodness, there's no hope for the world because 
people live within their delusions is one way you could say it. Maybe it's an extreme way of saying it. But clearly you, Matthew, are not hopeless. And clearly the Canadian Friends Service Committee is not hopeless. What you're trying to get us to learn by reading the book, Are We Done Fighting? Is it, here's how you should convince other people? (laughs) Or is it something else? I wouldn't say it's that. Some of these techniques can be used for a better quality disagreement. So I think there's pretty strong evidence that debate, especially on contentious issues that relate closely to people's identities, is very rarely effective. It's not, it's not your best approach. So some of these techniques could be useful for engaging with, say, let's say you have a family member who expresses a hateful view. They're very negative towards all Muslims, let's say. There's techniques in the book about how to have that conversation, and your best approach is not going to be debating what the Quran actually says. That's not the most likely to be successful. But I don't want it to just seem like it's kind of influence or certainly not manipulation is the, is the key principle. I hope that it will give all of us, myself very much included, cause to become more curious, cause to think more about the limitations of our own knowledge and perspectives, think about the limitations of the viewpoints that we're exposed to. So are we in an information bubble where we're only hearing from one perspective all the time over and over? Because that's what a lot of social media is doing to us. That's what, you know, your search result history is causing you to see only the types of searches that Google thinks that you would like to see. I hope that this gives all of us not a cause to not have beliefs. I think beliefs are important, but a cause to tone down our hyper certainty and engage in more constructive ways that are more likely to get our needs met and to also help other people. So that's really the goal. And and yes, there's lots of reasons to be pessimistic, but there's also lots of reasons to be optimistic. So it depends how you want to, what evidence you want to look at, how you want to frame these questions. It comes down to the same dynamics that we've just been talking about do want to remind folks, this is Spirit in Action, and today we're speaking with Matthew Legg. He is the Communications Director and the Peace Program Coordinator for the Canadian Friends Service Committee. He's been that since 2012. I've got a link to quakerservice.ca and slash register will get you to something good. Follow those links on our site. Also, there's a link right to the name of the book, arewedonefighting.com. He is here today for Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. And we have links to not only to Matthew and this interview, but to all of our interviews since 2005. We've done many hundreds of them with people doing great healing work for the world. And so you can listen to all of those on our site, find links to them. You'll find the stations where we're broadcast. Personally, I think, by the way, Matthew, that you should talk to someone there in Toronto and say they should be carrying our programs. I'm pretty sure you have some connections that will do that. Our programs will introduce you to different ways of thinking, being, and we try and interview with people across the spectrum. And so please, when you do listen to our programs, post comments and give us your two-way thinking. Discussion is much better than debate which is what I think Matthew just said. So please do give us your perspective and we will listen because that's what we're about here for Spirit in Action. Also on our site, you can support us. If you click under support, there is a place to donate. That's how this full-time work is supported. I also want to encourage you to support whatever alternative media you have. 
most media in the United States is owned by six corporations, something 90, 95% of it's owned by just six corporations. We need diverse thoughts, ideas, ways to make things locally relevant. And so please support those before you support Northern Spirit Radio. Again, the websites that you might want to go to are we done fighting.com or quakerservice.ca slash register. These will help connect you with Matthew Legg and the book, Are We Done Fighting? Building Understanding in a World of Hate and Division. One of the words that you said right before this little break, Matthew, was about being curious. Being curious is a much better way to interact with a person. You gave the example, you asking someone, well, so how do sanctions work? And all of a sudden, we're in a different category of, I'm right, you're wrong. It's like, well, what is? how does this work? Let's figure this out together. Are there more strategies like that that are really important in terms of building peace? Yeah, so what, what you just described, kind of changing the conflict dynamic from I'm right, you're wrong, and getting out of the moral domain as much as possible. If you read the book, you'll notice that I'm not making a lot of moral arguments against people, and that's uh, very deliberate. It's very easy to do, and sometimes that can be interesting, but it's, it's also limiting. <laughs> so I think complexifying the narrative and changing this dynamic from me versus you, I'm right, you're wrong, you're either with us or you're against us, to something a bit richer, where you're talking about me and you on the same team looking at the problem. So me and you versus the problem instead of me versus you. That shift is monumental. And so I'll tell you about some some experimental evidence from this kind of thing, which I think is pretty interesting. So Columbia University has the Difficult Conversations Lab, and apparently it's in a basement. So they find people with really strong views on a topic like abortion, and then they bring them together to sit down one-on-one across the table and have a conversation for an hour about this really sensitive topic that they strongly disagree with each other on. And as you can imagine, some of those conversations go really poorly. They just kind of descend and and it never goes anywhere. But some of them are actually much richer. And so after coding hundreds of hours of these conversations, the researchers started to see patterns, which is that the people who are having conversations, disagreements that they find more rewarding, they don't just agree with each other. Of course not. They're still challenged by each other, very much so, but they are having a richer range of experience. So they're both feeling challenged and they're feeling some genuine warmth for the other person as a unique individual. And they're both feeling that they strongly disagree with something the other person just said. And they're feeling curious, like, how did this person come to get there to think that? I want to know. In other words, they're having this really rich, very human experience rather than collapsing down into this one simple point of certainty of like, that person is evil. Anytime that you find yourself in this kind of collapsed place, try to expand it, try to ask some questions, try to realize the complexity of how many factors are at play, and you will have a better quality feeling, you'll have a better quality disagreement, and you'll be more likely to bring that out of the other party as well. And probably more likely to avoid civil war, which is a big factor, which it feels like we have in the United States to some degree. Uh, You know, January 6th for us was kind of moment of civil war, if you will. And there's still a number of people who think that was just fine. I'm curious of your perspective sitting up in Canada, and I I realize there's liberal and conservative people, individualist, communitarian people in Canada. It's not like there's one size fits all, right? But 
I'm curious overall the impression that Canadians have of the Trump administration, what they did. Was it as unbalanced as it was in the United States, even more unbalanced? How Can you compare it? With respect to kind of polarization or societal polarization, I want to make the point that there's different types of polarization. And so just disagreeing with people and having strong views is one thing, but where it gets really dangerous is when you reach what's called affective polarization, where I don't just disagree with you, but I feel negatively towards you. So what I was talking about of your evil, once things get to that extreme, then that's what's really damaging. I don't know if I would agree if it's civil war level damaging, but it's certainly, it's really dangerous. Yes, it's a very explosive kind of moment that the US is in. Part of this is not because the beliefs are actually so strongly opposed. Like there's research to show that there's actually a lot more people who agree on things between the Democrats and the Republicans than they think they do. And they drastically overestimate how extreme the other side is in their beliefs. Both sides do this. But the problem is that that identity, once you bring identity in and party identity is a really strong divider in the US, then that's enough to kind of shut things down very quickly. Now, from the perspective of Canadians, I don't know that Trump was very popular overall, but I think that he certainly had a base of support. And there were certainly people here in Toronto who were rallying in the streets in support of Trump and saying that the election had been stolen and all that kind of conspiracy thinking. And also, we have seen an increase in the number of white supremacist hate groups that have been active in Canada over the time period that Trump came into power. So I think it's plausible, it seems reasonable to suggest that that was at least, his presidency was at least one of the factors that emboldened white supremacists in Canada. Come back, Matthew, to some of the examples you give in the book. I find a number of them very insightful. So for instance, there was an example, why don't you choose which of these you find better? There was a question of if a white person went into a black congregation, shot people, you're going to blame all whites for the actions of that one white person. If you put that first and then ask them about blaming all Muslims for acts of some terrorists, it produces a noticeable difference in the response you get. I think there was also the example that you gave. It's about people crossing over from Syria, immigration from a southern border and attitudes. So it changes your point of view if you first express an opinion about something else. Could you talk about those specific kind of studies and examples? Sure. Yeah. So the one example, it's the best example I'm aware of, of quickly causing a reduction in uh, Islamophobic views, which are very common, by the way, in North America, here in Canada, certainly the research that I've seen suggests that some 40 something percent of Canadians hold Islamophobic views. So it's very, very common. So what the researchers did was they got people to first essentially define the rules of the game. So remember before when I talked about cheating on tests, how do we do it? Well, we do it because of ambiguity. It's very unclear what it means to be fair on the test or to cheat on the test. So because there's that ambiguous kind of gray area, that's what we use to fill with our stories of whatever I'm doing is right and justifiable. Okay, so what you do is you get people to define the rules of the game, to remove the ambiguity, to get rid of the gray area, to set up clear parameters. So how do you do it? So in the study, what they did was they said to people, Dylan Roof walked into the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church and he shot and killed nine parishioners during a prayer service. Roof cited his white identity as the motivation for the attacks. 
do you think that you're responsible for the acts of Dylan Roof as a white person? So people in the study said, no, I don't feel that I'm personally responsible for the acts of Dylan Roof. And then they said later, Muniba is a baker who owns a small bakery in southern France. Do you think that Muniba is personally responsible as a Muslim woman for the bombing that happened in Paris and that Desh claimed responsibility for? And Desh is ISIS in the USA. And people said no. They suddenly were 50% less likely to blame Muniba for a bombing carried out by Desh. So one of the ways that psychologists study behavior change and not just belief change, because oftentimes what we believe doesn't actually impact very much on what we do, (laughs) is they give them a little bit of money and they say like, here, you can give this money to a charity that's doing something. So if the people become less likely to donate to the charity that is advocating the cause they care about, then that's one good way to suggest that that actually changed their actions, not just the belief. And so in this case, they were less likely to donate to the charity. And then they did a follow-up three months later And they found that those changes were holding. Oh, really? So it was a pretty dramatic finding. And this particular study was done in Barcelona. And it just so happened, tragically, that there had actually been a bombing in Barcelona by Daesh. And so there could have very readily been a shift back to the previous Islamophobic view. And that didn't happen in this study. Again, we're talking about the book, Are We Done Fighting? The whole book is about peace and conflict, resolution. How do you actually move towards having peace? One of the essential concepts that's introduced in the book has to do with the difference between power over and power with, and also power from within. And I'd love it if you could say a few words about that, Matthew. So these are concepts that were developed, to my knowledge, by feminists in the 1970s. So they've been around for quite some time. Power over is the idea of essentially, I know what's right, and I'm going to make you do it one way or another. So it could be through rewarding you, or it could be through punishing you to try to make you conform to my will. That's the simplest way to think about it. And a lot of what we think of as power, when we talk about power, we're talking about power over. So it's, I would say, so common as the way that conflicts go in movies, in various forms of media, it gets very embedded into our ways of thinking about conflict, I would say. Power with is not just the opposite. So it's not just, I'm going to just be reasonable and go along with everything, or I'm just going to compromise on everything or do whatever you say instead of what I want. These are misunderstandings that are quite commonly out there. Power with is about genuine relationship and working with people. And again, that area of complexity of both trying to get my need met and trying to get your need met, not compromising on my essential values and not failing to hold people accountable, but also not assuming the worst about them, attacking them, that kind of thing. So it's much richer. Power from within is more of a concept of kind of spiritual power or kind of a moral agency that people have. So I would connect it most closely with that kind of sense of strong sense of morality when you really know that something isn't right and you need to oppose it or is right and you need to stand up for it. Matthew, both you and I, associating with enough Quakers, are used to a decision-making process, which is different than most of what the world does. 
I grew up Catholic and, you know, you get to vote on it in majority rules and for certain situations, you need a super majority. But Quakers have this weird thing where we decide in unity, the secular equivalent of that being consensus. How close do you think consensus or unity, the Quaker version, are to power with? I think depending on how they're done, it should be pretty close. I would say it's pretty close. But I also think that you can achieve power with without having to go necessarily to that model. There are lots of different models for getting people to engage across differences or in, even in situations where they don't trust each other. But what's really essential in those kind of processes is that you have a good process in place. So I don't need to trust you for us to necessarily be able to work together as long as I trust that there's a good process and both of us are going to have to follow it and there's some rules there that are really consistent and so on. So a good example of this is Wikipedia, right? Because you have very controversial articles on topics like, let's say, Israel-Palestine being edited by hundreds or thousands of people from around the world who don't know each other and don't trust each other and they're all just volunteers. But somehow that's able to come up with a relatively coherent and decent quality article. How does that happen? Well, because they have really good community guidelines and they are clear on how those need to be followed and etc. So uh, as long as the right process is in place, I think you can do a lot without even having to worry about consensus. But obviously consensus is even better if you want to build strong relationships between people. I also wonder about the processes, how you'd characterize them that happened in South Africa at the end of apartheid and in Rwanda post-genocide because they've been doing some decision-making, building, rebuilding society on a model that I think in the U.S. we would be very leery of. Yeah. One of the things that was really essential, as far as I understand it, in, say, the context in South Africa was articulating a positive vision and getting as many people as possible on board to move towards this vision. This is something um, George Lakey talks about a lot in his work of the importance of this positive vision for any type of social change at all. And I really agree with him on that. I see, unfortunately, way too much energy going into blaming and attacking without continuing to direct towards this positive vision. It's not to say that there doesn't need to be accountability. There does need to be accountability. So there has to be some balance there, but it can't become the only goal just to kind of tear people down. We really have to have this goal of building people up and moving society forward. And in Rwanda, there's really fascinating work that I talk about later in the book, quoting a couple people who participated in the Healing and Rebuilding Our Communities program. They were literally bringing together people, in some cases, who were on opposite sides of a genocide, right, and having to work through trust exercises together. It's incredible, very powerful stuff. I got to see some of them firsthand when I was in Rwanda in 2008. Cecile Niramana work bringing women together, Hutu and Tutsi women, whose husbands were either in prison for participating in the genocide or maybe whose husband's family were killed in the genocide, and bringing them together as partners, supporting one another is really powerful to see firsthand. I think that one of the problems we have is when you talk about power over, which, as you say, Matthew, is people's assumption that that is the way that it works, that that's power, it's power over, that's just power, of course, good. 
people say, but yeah, if I shoot and kill these people, do this, if I force this, if I buy the election, whatever, I've got the power and it works. See, I achieved. But you say that the studies are there to say that that kind of power over effort only temporarily appears to lead to a solution. Talk a little bit about that, if you would, Matthew. What I found really incredible was how many contexts this was the case in. From everything from child rearing to doctors in hospitals, to trying to work with former sex offenders, to international conflicts, the same sort of dynamic was showing up again and again. And what it was, was that if I force you to do something, I may at best get you to comply with that thing in the short term, but that's a short-term gain and there's very regularly blowback. So you're going to be even more resistant in the future. Our relationship suffers. It just doesn't work very well for either of us. This kind of ability to force people to do things is a very, very limited sort of power. It's, a, it's in many ways the weakest type of power, the power that comes from a gun. A much, much more powerful type of power is building relationships and getting people's hearts engaged in things such that they actually want to see that change happen. They actually want that behavior. They actually care about it. They actually understand it. As you talked about, you know, consensus or unity, and it's slower and it can be more frustrating to do those things than to just force a decision through quickly. And I'm not saying that there's no place for power over and that it's always bad or something like that. So that's too simplistic of a way to look at our very complicated world. But what I am saying is that the dynamic is very regularly the same across all these totally different areas, which I found fascinating. There's one item in the book that I wanted to take you to task on, and that is, again, the book, Are We Done Fighting? Building Understanding in a World of Hate and Division. Matthew Legg is the author who's with us here today for Spirit in Action. One of the issues, and actually this is a criticism I have of the Quaker world, we often phrase our decision-making, you know, are we going to agree on this thing? People will say, okay, I'm comfortable with that. The sense I got of what you're advocating in the book, Matthew, is that comfort is not necessarily a good thing, that actually the discomfort, the conflict that we have to work through and face, and it's a question of how you deal with that discomfort. But if you're comfortable, that could just as well mean that you're settled into a a deep state of injustice or of power over in some way. I'm comfortable because I don't have to deal with any of that stuff. I'm not thinking about it. Yeah, I think as with many things, it's about finding a balance, right? So I wouldn't advocate trying to make yourself uncomfortable all the time just for the sake of doing it. But I think some amount of open-mindedness and openness to experiencing discomfort and trying to analyze, you know, why am I feeling this way? And might there be some limitations to my perspective, right? Every single conflict that I looked into in researching this book and since is always more complicated than it seems at first. So I really came to think of them as something like flipping open a book of fiction and just starting to read at a random page. You know, there's always something that came before that you don't know. That is just 100% of conflicts are like that. So it's this kind of 
it's an incredible and generative, but also uncomfortable reality that that is the case, because it would be much nicer to just have a neat little box that explains everything and I can just stay within it and I don't have to worry. But that's just not how our world is. It's much richer. It's much more full of paradoxes and challenges. And, you know, if I didn't have any stress, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. I would just lie there, right? So I need some goals. I need some stress. I need some challenges. But it's also if I have too much of that, then it's going to cause me all kinds of problems. So chronic stress is certainly not ideal. So again, just finding this balance of how comfortable to be. I think I'd like to delve a little bit into the experience of Matthew Legg. And again, you're, you're working as the Peace Program Coordinator for the Canadian Friends Service Committee. You've been doing this since 2012. You've written this book, which if I haven't bothered to say it yet, Matthew, is a really wonderful book. It has so many rich ideas, experience, examples. It's not one-sided. And I think a lot of people, when they talk about peace, well, okay, they're just going to natter on about how great peace is or would be. But this is much more nitty-gritty and much more realistic. So I love the book and that perspective that you're bringing to me. Is this the fruits of doing your work since 2012? Do you actually get out there and do peace on the streets of Toronto or the other provinces, Ontario and and beyond Manitoba? Do you go out to British Columbia and do peace? Is this practical knowledge that you're also applying? This book came from a lot of different things. I would say First of all, it's not my original ideas, and I wouldn't claim that at all. It's the product of a lot of conversations with a lot of different friends, mostly across Canada, but also some friends in DR Congo, in Burundi, the West Bank, and in the UK and England in particular. So it has been a really rich experience of trying to pull together a lot of wisdom that I was hearing from friends, but that I didn't feel was well articulated for a general audience or wasn't being rendered accessible. And so what I really tried to do was take all of this and then also interrogate it against the evidence that I could find and try to pull out some tips and some stories and some nuggets that people can use in whatever way they want to. So you may consider yourself not a peace builder at all, but you still are interacting with other people. So that's why my kind of peace virus idea is like, you're still spreading peace to those people that you're interacting with. Network science backs this up, by the way. Everything that we do is heavily influenced by our networks, the people that we interact with, for better and for worse. So be careful what you're spreading. You know, you have a real power to spread something. Yeah, so my experience was one of taking, you know, years of work for Canadian Friends Service Committee, all these resources, all these stories, and then spending a few years trying to boil them down and distill them into what wound up being this book. One of the aspects we haven't talked about yet, Matthew, is in most of the chapters, you have not only a summary afterwards, so you help build retention, but you have examples, exercises that you can do. And we did them here, again, Eau Claire Friends Meeting via Zoom. We have done a study of the book. We've got one more session left. As we did that, we found ways to work with each of those examples. It's a little bit harder when you can't do a double circle. Your role plays don't have the same power when you're not in the same room. But there's really practical examples for experiencing, feeling, learning about ourselves, about ourselves in conflict, and about 
the wider world and how it does conflict. Any particular example you'd like to point out that people can learn from? Just give people a taste of the kind of thing that you've included. Yeah, so I tried to include direct stories that are real world. And then I also tried to include activities that can be facilitated in a group. I am facilitating online workshops with people. I've been doing it since June of last year. And I think we've had about 135 participants so far. So anybody can register for that for free at quakerservice.ca backslash register. It is tougher to do on Zoom for sure, but it can be done. So an example that you just talked about concentric circles, I find it it's so deceptive, but so powerful. So we give people some questions and one person is a speaker and they speak for two minutes uninterrupted, which how often do you ever have the chance to speak? Wait, what, do you, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so knowing that someone is listening to you for two minutes while you speak uninterrupted is actually really powerful. And it gives you a chance to try to be clear and to work through whatever your response is to the question that we've given. And then the speaker has one minute to summarize back. And the really interesting twist here is that they don't get to add their own opinions or advice or say what they thought. So they're just summarizing back what they heard. So it's a really great exercise as a listener to try to distinguish what you heard from your own assumptions and your own stuff that you want to put on top of that, your interpretations. So much of conflict is about a lack of listening and a lack of really having heard the person before responding to them. So if we can get to a point where I can say something to you and you repeat it back to me and I say, yes, that's exactly what I meant to say. That's what I said then we're in a great starting position to have a disagreement because we at least know what each other really wants to be saying. We can actually disagree about facts instead of just about our fears. Yeah, and we're not having two different conversations because so often we're actually talking about two different things. I'm picking up on a few of the words that you said and then I'm jumping on them and I'm trying to make your point sound worse than it actually was or more extreme. And, you know, we're not just, we just haven't even heard and understood each other yet. And how is it possible that I'm going to be willing and open to change my position if I'd say it to you and you just come back with an attack without even showing me that you've heard it first. So I need to really feel that I've been heard and that you care about me before I'm going to be open to having a deeper dive into the issues. And I want to just highlight that for our listeners here for Spirit in Action. Relationship building is where it's at. Once the person knows me as a person, their reactions will be different to what they what I say than if they're just dealing with an anonymous symbol that they're reacting to words. And you'll learn that and a lot more in the book. As I said to you before we got on the air, Matthew, we did our fifth session, which looked at peace building on a international, on bigger, I guess you'd say, riskier stages you know, confronting someone who's a racist? How do you go by and talk to someone who's actively in public doing something? Or how do you become part of peace brigades and do accompaniment? And, you know, you're standing right there with someone with a gun. 
the people in Eau Claire Friends meeting, as we considered this chapter, they said they were having positive experiences of the book being enriched. And they come to this section and they say, oh my goodness, not, oh, uh, not for me. <laughs> so what we've resolved actually to continue some practice studying. So I think we're going to be contacting Training for Change and maybe we can engage you to meet with us for a session and you can walk us through some of these exercises because we do want to build our peace virus capability. We want, we want to do it in a way that's useful for the world. Do you get that reaction a lot? Is, you know, you can talk about being peaceful and discussing with your cousins, your neighbors, your distant friends, your acquaintances. But when you talk about going to Central America or Colombia and all of a sudden you're standing in the middle between people pointing guns at each other. <laughs> it's like, okay, we, we can't do peace, really. <laughs> I think the standing in the middle between people pointing guns at each other hopefully shouldn't be happening too much, even among the um, unarmed civilian protectors. Like they're more serving as a presence and collecting information and maybe in some cases even as an unarmed bodyguard. It's not going to be the number one thing that happens. So I think this is what we tend to do is we tend to focus on the most extreme possible situation and then we get worried about it, right? So I'd say, first of all, don't focus there so much. So many of these conversations go to, well, what would you do about Hitler? Or what would you do about the worst possible thing that could happen? It's like, yes, that could happen. But that is also an outlier. It's not the most significant thing to focus on. So first thing to do is kind of build up your sense of your own capacity, right? Your power from within. And you're not going to do that by being really scared of the worst possible situation. <laughs> then the thing to do is practice, right? So kind of desensitize yourself a little bit to the kind of initial anxieties of it. So when you uh, read about bystander intervention, one of the reasons that a lot of people give about why they didn't intervene when, say, they're walking down the street and they witness a racist incident or something is because they're worried about making matters worse. They don't know what to do. And they see that there are other people there. So they hope that someone else will intervene. So first, of all, recognize no one else is going to intervene. So you have to do it. So stop diffusing your responsibility onto other people and have practiced. If you've already practiced it, you've role played it with someone else, then you know how it feels in your body to be in this kind of tense moment. And you also feel a lot more confident that you know what kind of things to say to not make matters worse. So there's an exercise for that in the book. I think that one's extra tough to do via Zoom, unfortunately, but hopefully soon we'll be able to meet with each other in person again. But yes, if you look at some of the most successful activists, they have spent a lot of time role-playing, putting themselves into stressful situations in practice so that when they actually do it in the real world, they don't snap, they're calm, they know how to deal with it. There's so many beautiful things that people can get out of this book if they read, Are We Done Fighting? Building Understanding in a World of Hate and Division. I'll repeat the point. This book is not just for people who are self-proclaimed peace activists. It's for the wide spectrum of people who just live in the world, live in the real world, and they want to live better in it. The book's by Matthew Legg. He's here with us here today for Spirit in Action. Legg, by the way, is spelled L-E-G-G-E. His website, arewedonefighting.com. You can find out, connect about the book, find out how to get it. And if you want to learn a little bit more, quakerservice.ca backslash register. 
is going to be a useful site. Both those links are on northernspiritradio.org. Matthew, this is a great fruit of the work and the study that you've done. I really love the way that you brought both the intellectual and, and experiential and heart values all together in this book in a way that I think really can speak to a wide portion of the populace. I think you do that with the practical exercises and study in there. I think you're equipping us to really do that job of building understanding in a world of hate and division. Thank you for doing that and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much. And folks, the links are on northernspiritradio.org. Go read, learn, and become part of the Peace Virus yourself and join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Our lives will feel the echo of our healing.